You are listening to National Security Law Today. Welcome to National Security Law Today, your source for content and law during the COVID-19 crisis. This week, the president has invoked the Defense Authorization Act, and daily briefings continue to reveal the accelerated pace of private sector involvement and what is nothing short of a war effort. In particular, a lot of administrative rules regarding vaccines and treatments are being relaxed to help accelerate the pace of the response. Scientific research and data collection that can assist in pandemics doesn't just occur here on the planet Earth, but in space as well. Space is possible resources, and the threat of commercial and nation-state exploitation is real. And yet, the law governing space is, well, sometimes it's a little squishy for a number of reasons. If you've listened to NSLT, then you've heard us discuss low and high orbital satellites, the existing treaties regarding space, uh, and more exactly, the moon itself. Uh, so we could not be happier or more honored to welcome two of the drafters and visionaries of the forthcoming space law document known as the Woomera Manual. And I'm sure you've all heard of the Talon Manual. Uh, this is going to be something massive in scale. Uh, Jack Beard is our guest today, among two. He's a professor at the University of Nebraska School of Law. He served as the Associate Deputy General Counsel of the Department of Defense for International Affairs. Uh, as a senior lawyer on several U.S. delegations negotiating international agreements on a wide range of U.S. military operations, and as chief of the international law section of the Judge Advocate General. Um, I don't know where to go. I can't really get all of Jack's bio in here because that would be the entire show. Um, but really importantly, I think for our listeners, he's written a, a special law review article that is just uh, very strong. It discusses the infirmities of soft law uh, as a as sort of a structure for guiding conduct in outer space. Um, we're going to hyperlink that. We're going to encourage you to read it for yourselves. Uh, Jack, it's fantastic to have you here. Thanks for coming. Thanks very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I look forward to talking with you. Thank you. And our other guest today is Professor Dale Stevens, who's a captain in the Royal Australian Navy Reserve and who now teaches at Adelaide Law School in Australia. He served in the Australian Defense Force, including as a Fleet Legal Officer, a Command Legal Officer, the Chief Legal Officer for Strategic Operations Command, Director of Operational and International Law, the Deputy Director of the Asia Pacific Center for Military Law, and the Director of Navy Legal and the Director of the Military Law Center. Wow. He also deployed twice to East Timor and twice to Iraq and received the Conspicuous Service Medal and the Bronze Star of the United States. Professor Stevens, welcome to NSLT. Thank you, Nicole. It's great to be here. All right, gentlemen, uh, why do we need to prepare a manual on the law applicable to military operations in space, other than the obvious things and current threat topography? Well, the, the, reason, the reason is that uh, military and civil activities in space continue to expand at, a, at a, uh, an incredible rate. And whilst uh, space law has been, uh, space has been the location for many military activities, it's becoming pretty clear that it's important uh, for uh, operations both in space and, and in the terrestrial environment. So the more the more activity that's going on in space, the more connected to what's happening on, on Earth, the more uh, critical and vulnerable uh, military operations uh, become. Hence, the need to understand what law applies uh, to space. Jack, do you want to expand on that? There's also the happy reality that we haven't had an armed conflict in space yet. Uh, it would be nice if it could stay that way. Uh, but if there is an armed conflict in space, and if in the ever congested realm of space, there is tension and there is already tension with uh, a, a quick look at the news almost any day now, uh, more predictable rules, more clear rules, a better restatement of the rules uh, offer an opportunity for states to not get into a conflict or to have a more predictable scenario when they encounter tensions and help avoid miscalculations. So it's uh, an extremely important time to take a look at what the law is and how it would apply uh, to military operations. And uh, civil and commercial space activities are also going to be very much affected. So the documents of uh, great relevance to them too. 
That relates to a question I had, which was about whether this manual would apply only to military space operations or to space operations by other possible players. So would you be able to talk more about how it could touch on the civil and commercial uses of outer space? Sure, I'd, I'd, be, li I'd be delighted to. Of course, you know, um, thanks to some um, innovations by billionaires and uh, investments by a lot of private companies, uh, there is uh, an explosion of uh, military, there's an explosion of civil activities and commercial in space. Uh, and as they go up and do their things, there's one really amazing, important and revolutionary thing in the outer space uh, legal framework, because there is a treaty, the Outer Space Treaty, uh, concluded in 1967, that lays a framework for what happens in space. Uh, scholars like to call it the Bible or the Magna Carta or the Constitution of Space. And one of its revolutionary provisions, and it is revolutionary, is Article 6, that makes everything that states do in space, uh, everything that private actors and non-governmental entities do, the responsibility of states, everything. Uh, the treaty doesn't make any exceptions on its face. Uh, and this is an odd situation in international law for the private actions, the private activities, the non-governmental activities to be attributed to a state. And that's what Article 6 does. And that immediately means that you're dealing with an area where everybody, everybody needs to study this because it's going to be a, a sort of a joint venture in space like in no other realm uh, because of that just because of that provision alone. But the other thing to, to just add to what Jack was saying is that in terms of what we're looking at, it is the focus is very much on military space operations. So while there are, there's an expansion of commercial and civil activity in space, that is, that is looked at in our Woomera manual. However, only in relation to its impact on military space operations. And at the moment, we're trying to sort out that, that level of impact and how much coverage we're going to provide uh, forward in, in our manual. Yeah, um, you know, but I think before we go any further, just briefly, um, I'm not as well versed in this and I never will be, you guys are amazing, but I, my question is, we've really got a number of large nations right now with uh, space forces. Uh, Russia has a space force, I believe China has announced, announced in maybe 2015, 2016, it has such a thing and now uh, President Trump has uh, announced that we're developing and we have developed a space force. And I just mentioned this for our listeners who may not be aware of that. Is that incorrect or have I, have I hit that okay, guys? No, that's, that's correct. Um, and it's, a, it's actually a happy thing when you talk about the, the other countries often viewed as adversaries of the United States and NATO and the Western powers and space, uh, China and Russia, uh, both of those countries are parties to the Outer Space Treaty. In fact, uh, every country that has independent launch capabilities uh, is a party, uh, with the exception of Iran, and they're a signatory. You'll find the overwhelming uh, number of states participating in space activities are parties to this treaty. And that provides some uh, framework that other activities don't have, like cyber. Uh, there is an international agreement that governs these activities and uh, all the major players are parties. Uh, so that's a, a good place to begin uh, as, we, as we begin the discussion of, of this. Space is, is very, uh, uh, very much a commercial, military, civil adventure right now. And there is a, a roadmap out there that needs to be assessed. Terrific, why is it called the Woomera Manual? Well, Woomera, Woomera actually is a town based in uh, remote South Australia. It was a town that was developed in the 1950s to begin the Australian-British uh, uh, space uh, capability and, and operation. Uh, and around about the 1960s, the British pulled out of Woomera and uh, the Americans came in and became a, an Australian-American um, centre for space uh, development in the 19th, from the 1950s up until the 1970s. And Woomera itself uh, had about 600 launches uh, in Australia. Um, in fact, all but two launches that occurred uh, in Australia occurred in Woomera. And hence, we thought, given the international nature of the township and, and its history, uh, that that was a, an apt name 
uh, for, uh, for this manual. Uh, the other thing to note is that Woomera itself, that the, the word Woomera is an Aboriginal wor word, uh, meaning a, an implement to throw a spear. So uh, it's, uh, it just seemed a very apt uh, title for, uh, for a manual that deals with operations in, in outer space. And you mentioned that it's the US at, and Australia that are touching on this uh, Woomera manual, but are there any other countries involved in the production or who is involved in the production and writing of the manual and just what's been the process of getting it to the place where it is now? Um, so the, the manual itself is spearheaded by four universities, the University of Adelaide based here in Australia, the University of Nebraska, the University of Exeter in the UK, and the University of New South Wales, Canberra, based in Canberra. Those are the four universities that are spearheading the actual um, uh, research and drafting of the manual. But of course, we have a number of other universities and a number of other uh, uh, government representatives, I've got to be careful with that term, representatives of government in their personal capacity um, that are participating uh, in the manual's drafting and development Plus, we have uh, representatives from uh, non-government organisations, the Union of Concerned Scientists, uh, Secure World Foundation, plus the International Committee of the Red Cross uh, have observer status uh, in, our, in our development. So we have a number of, of, of people from a number of institutions uh, coming to, together, and we've been coming together for the past few years uh, to, to work on the to work on the manual. In terms of representation, um, we've had uh, representatives at the moment uh, from a, in terms of uh, the actual core group from Australia, the US, UK, France, Sweden, Canada, Israel, the Netherlands, Japan, Estonia and China. Um, that, that has been the core group, but we've had other people coming and going um, as we've been progressing uh, uh, through the process. The process itself uh, actually is one where we are drafting the manual. We've had a number of face-to-face uh, -face meetings and, and many virtual meetings to discuss the, the content of the rules and the commentary. Um, we're getting to a point where we're nearing the end of the draft. Um, and at that point, we're going to be distributing it to peer reviewers that we've uh, asked to have a look at the manual uh, and to get their input. And then towards the end of the year, we have a state engagement process. And we're very grateful that the Dutch government has agreed to uh, host that, where states uh, will meet, uh, hopefully, uh, if the uh, COVID-19 um, um, pandemic uh, allows us to do this, uh, meet in The Hague uh, to, to go through for states to, to register their views on what we've said, to, to give us a sense of whether we've got it right uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of our research and, and, uh, and statements about the applicable law in outer space. So it's a, it's a multi-phase process with multiple players uh, contributing from various countries and various institutions in order to, uh, to enable all of us to get a sense of what the applicable law is for military space operations. So, uh, gentlemen, what is the status of these international operational law manuals? Well, they, they, the, the formal start status is that they have no status. So they don't, they don't have any particular legal status per se. So these manuals, the, the, the Woomera manual is perhaps the fourth manual in a series of manuals that have come out in the last uh, 20 years. The, the first is the San Remo manual on naval warfare. The second, the Harvard manual on air and missile warfare. The third, the Tarlin manual, which you, you spoke about, uh, Eliza. And then ours is the, uh, the, the Woomera manual. These manuals uh, have no, no formal status. They're not treaties. They're not um, drafted by states. They're just drafted by people who are informed and, and want to get a clarification of the law. Now, having said that, these manuals in, have turned out to be quite helpful for government decision makers and decision makers generally. People uh, from governments rely on these manuals to come to their own views about the law and then to implement those views in terms of operations. So in a, in a way, it, it aids and facilitates uh, governments and non-government non actors to understand the law and apply the law. And through that indirect means, the law becomes clearer. Well, that's, that's our hope, that the law, the law will become clearer. So um, these manuals have been cited uh, by international forums. Uh, parts of these manuals that I've mentioned have found their way into national uh, military law manuals. Um, and it's our hope 
um, that we will a get the manual right and get the the law right, and b that states will will adopt the the views that we think are which we think are the law uh, is the law uh, in their in their conduct of operations. And if I could add to that, they uh, these these manuals um, need to be distinguished from some other works. Uh, for instance, this manual is not a code of conduct for outer space activities. It's not an effort by academics or um, experts sitting around uh, deciding what the best way for states to act would be and what the law ought to be and how they think things should work and be a great idea to work. There's plenty of those documents out there, um, but they don't have the involvement of states. They don't really represent state practice in many cases. Uh, and that's not what our effort is here. Um, the effort is more like a restatement of what the law is and a really intensive look at the rules. And there has to be a lot of focus in this document on treaty interpretation because there is a treaty, but uh, unfortunately, or fortunately for us, the Outer Space Treaty is uh, really rather understudied, underappreciated, and hasn't been applied in a lot of modern contexts, modern in the sense of since 1967. So uh, the effort, and we'll talk more about this, is very much focused on state practice. Uh, what have states done in implementing the terms of the Outer Space Treaty? And going back to its negotiation, what did states actually say and do and negotiate and propose and give up on in creating the Outer Space Treaty, because it's a story that can't be talked about too much right now. Many of the debates going on uh, between states right now uh, had a home in 1966 in the negotiations of this treaty. Um, serious debates, uh, resolutions achieved, and a document agreed to. And so that's the basis and some of the methodology also underlying what it is uh, this thing is when we talk about it's an international operations uh, manual. Could you give us an idea of some of those debates that were being had in the 60s that are still live between states today? Well, there was a tremendous, um, a tremendous dispute uh, by some countries uh, suggesting that uh, space should be reserved for only peaceful non-military uses. Um, those states unequivocally lost in that battle uh, in the way the treaty was ultimately uh, drafted. And of course, from the very beginning, space has had military operations. Space has had military satellites. Space has been military, if you want to call it militarized for a very long time. And the, most of the objects up there for a very long time have been a military and and controlled by people whose first name is Lieutenant Colonel or something. It's, it's not been a demilitarized frontier. But that, that point, though, uh, leads you on to focus on what things specifically were restricted for um, military activities. And in some respects, uh, the Outer Space Treaty is an important arms control agreement. It's very clear about uh, uh, weapons of mass destruction uh, there were debates about how they would phrase some things and where they would put uh, some of these obligations or whether they'd just be relegated to the preamble. Uh, and out there, uh, looming for you is one thing of great interest to all of the, uh, uh, the people debating about space resources right now. Uh, the, the beginning of the Outer Space Treaty talks about how this new realm is to be open for free use, free access, free exploration. But as soon as it says that, the treaty proceeds to march through ways in which that freedom is restricted. One of the big things right now is what does that word use mean when it comes to exploiting natural resources? And of course, the United States has a view of that that we've put in our legislation. Other countries don't agree. But that's just one of the, the points that found a home uh, ultimately in some language. From our perspective, looking at military activities, uh, it's extremely important to look at the explicit restrictions imposed on military forces and the sort of obligations everybody has with respect to these space objects. Because 
the other really important thing is, except for the specific restrictions in Article 4, commercial, civil, and military all live with the same rules in the Outer Space Treaty, and that's worth a, a considerable amount of, of attention. So that's just, that's just a, a part of those negotiations. Please, yeah. Can I just expand on that? So what, one of the things we're doing with the Woomera Manual is we're looking, uh, we're looking at the law as it applies today, the, the Lex Lata as it applies to military space operations, but we're also looking about 20 years into the future. So what are we likely to be doing 20 years from now? What are military forces likely to be doing 20 years from now or humanity doing 20 years from now? And the interesting thing about that is that back in 1966 and the debates in the 1967 treaty, the, the drafters actually had in mind uh, what might be happening in outer space in, into the future, way back 50 years ago. And so, as Jack says, there are limitations on what, uh, mil what, what military forces may do on the moon and other celestial bodies in Article 4. Um, but but in, in discussing that, the, if you look at the, the, the negotiations, it was left a little bit uh, ambiguous in certain ways. And so what we're looking at now fast forwarding 50 years to now and then looking further 20 years into the future is what were they thinking back then and what's likely to be happening and what are the boundaries what are the actual boundaries what have states said in the interim about what they're going to be doing in in outer space and we're trying to match up the the the, the negotiating history and the and the intent as to meaning of these terms then what states have said in the interim to come to a conclusion now and 20 years into the future as to as to what might be what might be possible. And that's actually revealing a lot of very interesting uh, developments because a lot of the time we're finding they, they got it right. They got it right in what they were going to be predicting uh, would be happening uh, decades into the future. And it's a, it's a, it's a marvelous surprise to look at something and, and go, holy cow, this, you, you were talking about this 50 years ago. This is what we're talking about now. Um, so it's, a, it's been a kind of a discovery um, moment as we've it's, been going forward. It's extremely exciting as a lawyer uh, who's worked in an area for a long time to read uh, materials of many years ago and experience these problems that they were thinking about and fast forward uh, to today. Uh, there, there are quite a few examples of this, but one that I, we talk about in the manual involves the Antarctic Treaty. Um, you know, that was on the table when they were doing the Outer Space Treaty. Uh, Antarctica was supposed to be a demilitarized region on Earth, it was supposed to be special. And they used special words in describing what Antarctica would be. When they came to the Outer Space Treaty, same countries, many of the same delegates, suddenly bits and pieces of the Antarctica Treaty disappear and aren't used in the Outer Space Treaty. And those missing words convey something in and of themselves since they just got done doing that treaty. But I'd also note that they, they were worried a lot about some things that now may be a lot more of a worry. An interesting area, since you ask about debates, uh, comes in Article 12 about visits to facilities on the moon or other celestial bodies. And there was a, an enormous debate about should you be able to go visit your your neighbor's um, facility, although that's not exactly what is going on, but to visit other countries, other states, other corporations' facilities on the moon. And the idea was that it uh, would be uh, free and open access. The United States really wanted that. Antarctica had free and open access. But the Russians decided that wasn't really what they wanted. They, they wanted something else. They wanted a uh, a reciprocal right and arrangements to be made before visits. And when you read the debate over that, you get the impression that, that what's left for us in Article 12 probably isn't the free and open access that the United States had originally envisioned. Anyway, these are just bits and pieces of, of really interesting stuff applicable to military activities and civil and commercial activities uh, on the moon. Well, that opens the door talking about if we're discussing the future of legal operations in space, are there some issues that we today in 2020 are looking at for the future in space? 
Well, we're certainly, uh, one of the things that we are anticipating is that there will be, uh, hu humanity will actually have uh, operations on celestial bodies. We, we are assuming that is going to happen. We're also assuming that there will be resource extraction of, of asteroids and other celestial bodies. And that raises issues of security, security of, of corporations, of, of representatives of states on these bodies. And then what does that actually mean? How does that actually look like? If you've got limitations on military activities on the moon, which we do under the Outer Space Treaty, how, does, how, does, how is security provided and in what manner uh, should there be should there be conflict? Should there be rising tension between states? And and that's what we're trying to that's what we're trying to navigate is understanding what those limits are, but then understanding the reality of, of what will likely happen if there becomes a, a an emerging uh, tension or emerging crisis as to how how states would likely want to react. And we're trying to be ahead of the game a little bit in providing what the law says today, uh, the lex lata, so that. If if a if a if a government wants to do something, we, we're hoping that they'll they'll look at our Woomera manual and, and say, well, this is what they think the law is, and do we agree with it? Uh, and then and then move on with a sense of confidence, so that all players have a sense of boundary as to what uh, as to what might apply. The research requirements here are challenging because, as Dale stresses, this is lex lata. This is what the law is. It's not a bunch of professors sitting around and writing a bunch of neat law review articles about what they'd like. It's just not that. Uh, it's far more important for us to find instances of state practice and official statements by states uh, about what is happening and how it's happening uh, and what they intend to do and what their policies are. Uh, so anybody can write a piece about what they'd like space law to do um, the difficulty and the tedium of going back and reading, negotiating history and searching through documents to find state practice, uh, far more important. But I think I should also mention, if we haven't already, that the Woomera Manual is not projecting into future scientific, science fiction, futuristic battles and so forth, right? Um, we're not talking about a, a period, I think, are we 30 years out? 20, 20. 20. Um, and so you can envision uh, space being a realm of all sorts of conflict and military bases and so forth. Uh, we are looking at the, the realistic scientific approach, and we have great scientific advisors about what we worry about in the coming years. So we don't have some of the elaborate, fantastical visions of what could be happening on the moon. And that's really important because it would be nice to lay out the foundation for what we agree on now about peaceful relations and space. I'd like to, if I could, um, highlight how this means sort of in practice. Uh, you've recently had a, um, a dispute uh, involving the French government and the Russian government. The French are very, very, very unhappy about a Russian satellite coming very, very close to its satellite. And as you may have read, the French used extremely interesting and bellicose, belligerent language about what was happening. Um, the defense minister spoke of how they weren't going to weaponize space, but they were going to arsenalize space. And I think arsenal in space, which is kind of an interesting set of words. Uh, and all sorts of other um, rather bellicose language. Uh, but after some period of time, the language died, was scaled back a little bit. And when it came to invoking legal principles that they could have invoked, the French against the Russians, um, the French did not accuse the Russians of an act of aggression. The French didn't accuse them of a use of force or threat to the use of force. They didn't accuse them of, of possible violations in the Outer Space Treaty of a failure to show due regard or a potential interference that they complain of. They had a list of things they could have chosen to invoke, but did not. And, and that ends up being rather interesting and significant, given the, there are two big players in space here. And there is, in spite of the rhetoric you hear about um, bellicose, belligerent, threatening things in space, there's a great deal of restraint being showed by the major space powers, even as they engage in all sorts of conduct that 
but it looks like it's um, not particularly friendly. Uh, and so that's, that's, that's part of the study here as we look at what we have. And we have more than enough now to look at without having to worry about a lot of years down the road. Uh, we've got plenty of um, military operations in space that would benefit from rules that might increase the likelihood of, of getting along and not miscalculating. That would be a hope. Okay. So what are some of the specific legal areas that are covered in this manual and what is not or was deliberately chosen to be left out of this particular manual? So the focus, the focus, we keep coming back to the central theme, the focus is military operations in, in outer space. So what is happening uh, right now? What is going to be happening in the near future? And to us, there were three three general areas of, of, of concern that were of direct relevance. The first is military operations in peacetime. And so that is, what does the Outer Space Treaty say right now, um, and the other four treaties, uh, that if you're party to the other four, or most are party to some of them at least, um, what do they what do they say about what military the military can do right now? And that, as Jack said, what we've been doing has been going back through the various terms of the of the Outer Space Treaty. There's only 17 articles in, in total in the Outer Space Treaty, looking at what they say, looking at what the draft has intended, and then matching that up with what is happening right now in peacetime and seeing what the boundaries are, what states have been saying about those boundaries. So so that is peacetime. We're also looking at the use of force or, or circumstances short of armed conflict. And Jack gave an illustration of that just now. Uh, when, when satellites pass close to each other and you get this effervescence of, of comments, uh, political comments, what is the legal content of that? What is a threat of use of force? What is a use of force? Uh, what is intervention? What is interference in the space context? So that is a, that's the second big component, a, a kind of a use ad bellum, a use of force, uh, aggression uh, component. And then the third component that we're looking at is outright armed conflict. What if it all goes horribly wrong and states are engaged in armed conflict, um, either on Earth that extends into outer space or in outer space uh, from the get-go? Um, what is the law applicable to armed conflict uh, in outer space, both international and, and non-international? So those are the three main areas that, that we look at. To that end, um, we, uh, our publisher has a, a word limit uh, in, in, in terms of the ultimate uh, book. Uh, we've restricted ourselves to those main areas to, to largely come within that word limit. But what does that mean? That means that things like uh, international criminal law, international environmental law, international human rights law, they're not given specific focus. However, to the extent that these other bodies of law impact in any of these main three areas, then they get mentioned, then they get covered to the extent uh, we can cover them uh, in, order that, uh, in order that we can deliver the, the manual with a sense of integrity as to the, as to the content. So um, those are the three uh, main areas uh, that, that we're looking at. If I could add uh, onto that, uh, the, the manual is built around the idea uh, of space being able to be uh, to function under a legal framework and whenever you're talking about that you're talking about peace as opposed to conflict so it's a peace manual to begin with but if there is an armed conflict in space this is very important and lost I think on some people you really want to talk about how the law of armed conflict would apply in space and understand that because what's the principal purpose of the law of armed conflict? What, what is it about? It's the International Court of Justice is very clear on it. What are, what are the cardinal rules? Well, the very first one is avoiding to the extent possible civilian casualties, damage to the civilian population, civilian objects, conducting military activities in a way that doesn't result in unnecessary uh, incidental damage to the civilian population and minimizing unnecessary suffering for combatants. But this, this focus uh, on the law of armed conflict is not some grand construct about how to fight wars in space. It's about how to make these rules that respect human life and civilians 
operate in space. Uh, armed conflict necessarily involves things that are better avoided for all humanity, and that, of course, is war. But if it happens, then how do these rules apply? And I, I have to say, working with um, really some really very, very talented colleagues of mine from around the world, that since there's never been an armed conflict in space, and there's never been an armed conflict under this treaty that governs space, you've got some remarkably complicated questions about uh, neutrals and belligerents and uh, what the status of these different objects uh, are in space, the status is of these different objects. And it, um, it's not a simple story and it doesn't correspond with any other uh, legal construct on uh, land, sea, or air. So we've got more than enough law to apply to this problem without looking uh, too much further into some of those other areas that, um, that uh, Dale mentioned, well said. And if I could just add to that, I mean, I agree entirely, Jack. And I think what the, one of the messages we're trying to, to, to deliver with this manual is that uh, the law of armed conflict is indeed all about ameliorating violence and protecting civilians to the greatest extent possible. And we're spending a lot of time with the, with the assistance of the ICRC who have observer status in, in understanding what those boundaries are, how that law will achieve exactly that. The other point that I might add, and it, it comes up across the manual, um, Jack mentioned at the beginning uh, of this session that uh, principles of state responsibility have a particular application under Article 6 of the Outer Space Treaty that, that is different, that is different to what is, is the, the, the general law. And so we've spent a lot of time looking at this particular principle of, of, uh, of state resp of responsibility as, as, uh, as contained in Article 6 and how that applies to states and non-state actors uh, in terms of these three big areas. And uh, that, that does actually take a lot of, of the focus of our manual. Uh, and it comes up with, with uh, issues and answers that are, that are surprising in, to, to some extent to those of us who um, are used to the general regime applying um, you know, in, in other contexts. And let's face it. Space law is incredibly interesting and entertaining for every type of legal practice. A torts lawyer would have a lot of fun with our recent discussions about the liability clause. Uh, you know, there's, a, there's something for everyone in the Outer Space Treaty. And for international law students, this is advanced international law too. Uh, other things we take for granted under other regimes are not there. And, and I just say before anything else, when you have a clause that takes out the concept of territorial jurisdiction, you have a clause that eliminates that. When you have a clause that says nothing can be occupied by any means ever, ever, when you have that clause, you eliminate a whole lot of, of things that we assume are kind of the guiding uh, lights, ground posts, foundations for things we talk about in organizing legal concepts on earth. And although you can read this simple treaty of 2,200 words and say, well, that's an interesting thing, it is quite radical and, and makes all these other regimes that we all work on as lawyers have to be tweaked or, or substantially changed. So it's great stuff, fun for every lawyer. I do have a question, Jack. I forgot to ask you guys, which is, how are you defining space? Because uh, I feel like so much of what we've discussed as space is really low orbital activity. Well, um, you know, I, I, um, I'm the uh, co-director of the Space Cyber and Telecom uh, program at the University of Nebraska. I teach um, military officers from all four services about space law as they get their graduate degree and go on. Uh, and we talk about all these things. And so I have to say, and, and I've worked on many arms control agreements, I have to say what I'm going to say with a caveat that it is a long-standing U.S. position, but it is shared by other states. The United States has consistently, every time we have a chance, object to a definition of what outer space is. And we will continue to object as long as there are living human beings on the other side uh, representing the United States, I, I would imagine. Uh, the United States has been very much against any definition of it because uh, to do so, 
from the U.S. view would be to preclude potential future technological developments we can't anticipate about that boundary. Now, the Russians are eager to define the boundary, and they'd like to have new boundaries involving new innocent passage rights, sort of for military objects. And stuff. The Russians have some, some grand ideas about how you could divide space up. Uh, we are not taking that position. Uh, well, the manual is simply stating what state practice is, and state practice can't decide. You can make arguments as a physics professor or a, a, an expert in aerodynamics about a place where space could arguably begin and uh, everything below is listed. But remember, and this is the key thing, that once it becomes a country's national airspace, it's subject to that country's exclusive control and jurisdiction. You know, they shoot things down, especially military things when they're in their airspace. As soon as you enter above that space, you're in this magnificent area carved out by the Soviets and the Americans, allowing free use for military objects and so forth. So it's an enormously important divide. Uh, and it's, uh, it doesn't look like it's going to be uh, settled anytime soon. It's been debated for many years uh, at the United Nations and there are competing views for it. So that's just one interesting um, legal history short for you about that question. But I might, I might just add uh, to that, that for, for, for Australian uh, purposes, a, a number of countries like my own, um, for our domestic civil aviation law, just for our domestic purposes, we set a boundary of 100 kilometres uh, up into the air. So for us, uh, for our domestic legal, not for an, any international statement, we think the boundary somewhere about 100 kilometres vertically. And, and other countries might share that view in terms of their domestic law, but Jack is absolutely right. There is no definitive answer in law as to where space begins and national airspace uh, ends. That's true. And, and if, what's fun about this topic is, of course, we have commercial actors now. What, what leader of Virgin Galactic or some other company wouldn't want to give all the passengers a space pen saying they're astronauts and that they've traveled into space? Well, of course they'd like to say that. The people are paying $250,000 or more for a ticket. So of course they want their astronaut pen. And the company is probably going to define space as far as their, their spaceship will take them. Uh, and that will be space. Uh, and you know you can also look at the US Air Force and they've been giving out astronaut pins for a while at different levels, which aren't necessarily the US government's treaty bound legally stated limits. So it's a, it's a fun topic, uh, but you're correct that the suborbital world is a different legal regime. And that if you're in that world and you're not in space, uh, it's a different legal uh, phenomenon. So it's not an irrelevant question, uh, but it's a, a recurring uh, one that has a long history and now commercial actors are involved uh, and they have definite views they forcefully express and bring scientists to explain why their astronaut pens are indeed legitimate astronaut pens. But that's different from uh, an arms control agreement or something that establishes this boundary just for reference. <laughs> well, I would not deprive anyone who spent 250K on a, a ride to space. No, no. All right, so um, I, there's always a process question that I think is important because I, uh, the, these, uh, this kind of an undertaking is so process laden. What was the methodology uh, that was employed here and determining what applicable, what, they, what the applicable law would be in drafting the manual? And uh, talk to us a little bit about how that methodology might differ from other manuals. We mentioned Talum, for example. So as uh, I might start with this, and I know Jack will, will finish this, but uh, I, uh, we have been very uh, careful in uh, looking at uh, two things. The first thing is uh, the Outer Space Treaty Regime, which comprises five treaties, and and just about everybody uh, has, has signed and ratified 
or at least signed the Outer Space Treaty, um, and then a, a lower number of countries for the other, the other four. We have been very clear in having that as our starting point. So here, are, here is the Outer Space uh, Treaty regime. How does, that, how does that apply using principles of interpretation from the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties to understand what these treaty terms mean? We, uh, so that's our starting point. The second part of that though, is Article 3 of the Outer Space Treaty says that general international law applies to outer space, uh, in particular, the UN Charter. We've also got the task of, after looking at how space, the space law treaty regime applies, how do these other areas of international law apply and connect with the space law regime? And so you, you use <clears throat> the Vienna Convention on the Law of Treaties, as the starting point for your interpretation. Um, but you might have conflict. You might have conflict between the treaty regimes. And Jack's already spoken about, we're looking at the law of armed conflict and how does the law of armed conflict uh, apply to, um, to other, other the, the, out, the outer space regime? And so you use various principles of interpretation to resolve that conflict. Lex specialis is one, but it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't hold all of the answers. You look at other, other regimes of interpretation to come to a conclusion. So that's the first sort of big starting point. The other thing to mention, and we've been making this point throughout, is that you look at state practice. What have states said in the negotiating history? And what have they said since that time? So you look at what states are doing in terms of um, ASAT tests, anti-satellite uh, tests. So China, US and India have all shot down uh, their own satellites. And what have they said about that? What is, their, what is their legal statement? And we've been distilling that. Interestingly, nobody has said that shooting down a satellite is, a, is contrary to the outer space regime. Uh, there have been all sorts of negative comments about it politically, but nobody has said that it is in itself a violation of the Outer Space Treaty. So that has legal significance. So through this painstaking assessment of what has been said, uh, what states are saying, uh, how you would then uh, reconcile these regimes, uh, we come up with our with our tentative conclusions. And the point that, we, that, that Jack has made and, and I wanna reinforce is that we are not looking at what we might want the law to be. We're looking at what states are saying the law is. And that, that can only be uh, the right way in, in, in terms of methodology in, in coming to conclusions about content. Jack, did you want to expand yeah, I, on that? I'd, um, that's all really good. Um, you know, if you're a, a law professor and you teach international law, then this is for you. This is for international law geeks. It absolutely is uh, to decide how these conflicts work um, between the, the laws we know are applicable. And as Dale said, um, the beginning point where the Outer Space Treaty applies international law to space, you know, there were other ways of doing space. But the decision was to make the UN Charter applicable there. And so you're going to have that right to self-defense in outer space. Uh, what will that mean? And in exercising, that's, that's a right. Uh, you know, there's considerable authority for the right to exercise UN Charter uh, privileges and rights uh, over others. Uh, if there's an, a conflict between another treaty and the outer, the other, another treaty in the UN Charter, Article 103 of the UN Charter says the Charter prevails. You have different regimes that are there and then you have some of the conflict issues already resolved and then you have others that have maybe two different Lex Specialis regimes uh, coming, into, uh, coming into conflict with each other. Um, there's, uh, there's two points I'd like to make about this. The, the first is that as, as important as it is to identify where the law is, it's also import, important to identify those places where there is a hole, where there's not agreement, where there's not, uh, not a, a really sound foundation or basis to say this rule governs this. Uh, when you participate in these things as a law professor, you might want to go on and say, well, it could be this and this and this and this, and I think this is best. But that's not what we're choosing to do. If you're stuck with a subject, again, like cyber, you may not have a choice because you don't have an agreed framework and you're looking at future things and calculating and speculating. So we're really, really trying hard not to do that. 
Um, and I'd also note that there are really interesting concepts in the Outer Space Treaty that people just don't know about that are really quite exciting. Uh, and they're important to us from a military perspective, but as I work on them, I'm, I'm quite convinced they're just as important for civilian uh, and commercial purposes as well. And at Nebraska, we have a, a faculty teaching uh, in space law in that as well. But one of my favorites is the liability provision, again, and launching state. A launching state is responsible for the damage its objects cause in space and has a pretty much strict liability regime when things crash to Earth. But there can be as many as four different launching states when you apply these, these rules. And then the question is, who owns, who owns, who's got the liability when one of these accidents occurs? And what happens like we are having now when one country, France, sells one of its satellites to somebody else and, and they're floating around with it, they're orbiting with it. Uh, who's, the, who's the logic stick? Where's the liability? And in a, a recent uh, copious, uh, the Germans were frustrated and said, look, once a launching state, always a launching state. We, we, can't, we can't deal with this regime any other way than this. I'm glad we have states stepping up, but I think that if you, if you hear people talk about there being um, you know, just no space law out there, well, there's space law and there are people and countries that are debating it and they are becoming more and more a focus as billions of dollars go into space. and the, the regimes that are in place for them are, are there. Uh, and so the military are right there alongside with the commercial activities. Uh, and we, will, we have to worry about those things too, because the, the military has to be concerned about who's responsible for what, who's liable for what, um, just like you might have uh, in other theaters or domains. Uh, it's just this one is only starting to be really commercialized and more explored. All right, gentlemen, I want to thank you for coming in today um, for what I hope is just the first in a series of podcasts on this critically important topic. I suspect a growth area of the law, um, and I really appreciate your efforts. Um, I know we've all watched with concern uh, the development of space forces in China and Russia um, uh, right now uh, with interest. Um, and uh, obviously we've tried very hard to develop a discussion of this topic and we're delighted uh, to learn some time ago about your efforts, but even more delighted that you're able to come in now at this phase uh, of the development of the manual. So this has been outstanding. Uh, I really appreciate you coming in, both of you. I'm looking forward to further conversation in the future when your work is complete. It's great to work with Australians. That's all I can say. <laughs> thank you so much, Elizabeth. And thank you, Nicole. It's been great. Thank you very much. Um, I look forward to having you back. Uh, you're a delight, both of you. Thanks so much. It's been no a worries. pleasure. Thank you. thank you. Okay. And thank you to our listeners for tuning into SLT. We'll continue to deliver content to you during these difficult times so that you grow your knowledge of the law, legal opportunities, and all events that affect national security law. Remember to hit that subscribe button on your app of choice. Be sure to send us comments or feedback and feedback uh, because we want to hear from you. So find us on Twitter at ABA NATSEC or send us an email at nationalsecurity@americanbar.org. We look forward to seeing you next time, but lest you should think we'd let you get away without a disclaimer, let me say that everyone on this podcast is here in their individual capacity. Uh, and not on behalf of any agency or firm. We'll be back next week with more content. Be well, everyone. We're all in this together, even though we're apart. Thank you for listening to National Security Law Today. Look for links to the Black Letter Laws and articles mentioned on our show today in the notes or on our website. You can also find us on Twitter at ABA Matt Sack.